This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Uliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Hi, Mom and Mind listeners. Thank you so much for listening. I'd really love to hear from you guys uh, what your experience is listening to the podcast and how it's influenced either you getting support of your own or seeking out training or whatever way that it has supported you. So I've compiled a short six-question anonymous survey through SurveyMonkey, and I'm going to drop the link to that in the show notes. And so it will also be on my social media accounts on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, I really, really love to get some feedback from you guys and hear how listening to the Mom and Mind podcast has impacted you. So if you can, please take just a couple of minutes, find that link and take that survey. Thank you so much. This episode touches on topics that may be sensitive for some listeners. Welcome to Mom and Mind, a podcast about maternal mental health, discussing conception, pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. Real stories from moms and family members who have made it from struggling to wellness, and interviews with experts and advocates who work for moms and families to get the help they need. This podcast is meant to offer information and awareness and is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Welcome back to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. On this episode, I'm honored to talk with Raul Martinez. We'll be talking about how postpartum mood changes impacted his wife, himself, and their family. We'll be talking about the loss of his wife, Kelly, to complications from postpartum depression, which led to her suicide when their daughter was just three months old. Some of the things we discussed today may be difficult to hear. We're discussing this, though, because we need to. We, the collective, we have to be aware and proactive and informed. We have to be helping moms and families so that suicide can be prevented. Sadly, postpartum depression is the number one complication of childbirth, and suicide in the postpartum period is the second leading cause of death for women. This is a really big deal and why we're talking about this today. Raul has become an advocate for improvements in perinatal depression awareness, prevention, and treatment. Raul has been featured in documentaries about postpartum depression and has spoken before the California legislature, at medical training seminars, and to numerous community groups in an attempt to raise awareness and to affect change on behalf of women, children, and families. Thank you so much for being with us, Raul. I'm so happy to talk with you today. Oh, great. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I know that you've been doing a lot of work and a lot of advocacy work. So I'd like to kind of orient folks who are listening 
to what happened for you and what happened for Kelly and her story. And then we'll go from there. Sounds good. Yeah. So if you can just kind of share your story and about your late wife, Kelly. Okay. Well, uh, Kelly and I got married in 2006 and, you know, we decided we wanted to start a family. And so, you know, after a couple of attempts, we finally were blessed with our child, our Melina, and she was born in November of 2009. And we were very happy. And Kelly was one of these people that really liked to prepare and to get all her ducks in a row and, and wanted to do everything possible to give our child the best start in the world. So, you know, we went to all the classes, the prenatal classes. She went to all her prenatal appointments prenatal vitamins, you know, maintaining a healthy weight, exercising, you know, and so getting the baby's room ready, interviewing and selecting pediatricians. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so we were really trying to put ourselves and our child in the best position to succeed moving forward, especially as first-time parents. You know, it's a daunting task (laughs) thinking of trying to raise a child. And so everything started fine until you know, we had the birthing plan and all of that, but then we did have an unplanned Mm C-section. And from there we were in the hospital, you know, and hospitals aren't the most conducive to rest. And so we were in there for probably about a week, you know, while Kelly was recovering from the C-section and obviously having a newborn just in and of itself is difficult to sleep. Yeah. And unfortunately, Kelly was not a good sleeper. Mm -hmm. That was one of her risk factors if she was not a good sleeper. So she would try to rest and sleep when Melina was asleep, but she had a hard time shutting off her brain. She was anxious about everything that didn't go the right way, yeah. you know, for during the birth. And unfortunately that continued on mm-hmm. is that once we got home, she also was unable to sleep and rest while Melina was taking naps and whatever. And you know, I think it was the accumulation of the sleep deprivation over several months mm. that by mid-December, something was clearly wrong and she knew it. And so she was, you know, but because of the holidays, it was difficult for us to get in to have her see anybody. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until early January we were able to have her go in. And she, it was her choice. She wanted to see a psychiatrist to mm. um, get evaluated, see if she could get on some kind of medication. And she did finally get a hold of a psychiatrist and not the one she wanted because there was a big backlog to get into this particular one that focused really on women and new mothers. So there was a big backlog. She couldn't get in to see that one. So we started seeing another one. And, you know, unfortunately with some psychiatric medications, you know, it's hard to find the right combination of them Mm -hmm. and the right dosage. And not only that, you can't just start at the therapeutic level. You have to kind of like work your way up. Right. And it might take a couple of weeks before you get to a therapeutic dosage. And so during the meantime, all her symptoms were starting to get worse and worse and worse. And she started having thoughts of, you know, suicidal ideation, thoughts of she would walk into a room, she would tell me, and any room she'd walk into, the first thought would be, what is in here that I can use to take mm-hmm. my own life? And she was telling you was about really, that? Yeah, she did. And that was mm-hmm. really scary to hear. Yeah. But I was glad that she was being honest with us, right. you know, with me and with her mother. And, you know, she shared these feelings with the doctor. And, 
finally the medication started kicking in and taking the edge off of some of those feelings, you know, but unfortunately for her, she was one of these people that any medication she took, it would increase the side effects for her. She mm-hmm. experienced the worst of all the side effects from all the different drugs. And it didn't matter whether it was a psychiatric medication or whether it was, you know, Tylenol or anything in between. Mm-hmm. If there was a side oh, effect, okay. she was going to get it. She was going to feel it. So unfortunately, she did not do well on the medications. And mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure. And unfortunately, I'll never know the truth. But on February 8th, 2010, she did take her own life at her mother's house while she was down there for the weekend trying to just relax, get some rest, rejuvenate and recover. And she had had some bad experiences with one of the psychiatric medications. They tried to switch her to another one and it just didn't work. And I told you there was those feelings of anxiety. Yeah. And I think it just kept building and building and building And that combined with the sleep deprivation, combined with her sensitivity to side effects, the drugs, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the different physicians I've spoken to that are experts in the field of emergency medicine Mm -hmm. and, you know, psychiatric care, they all believe that she suffered a psychotic break and, uh, you know, caused her to take her life. And so... I've spoken to California state legislature a number of times. I've spoken to women's groups. You know, I've been in a couple of different documentaries. And really, I think for me, when I try to share our story, is I try to encourage people to, you know, as physicians, people that come in contact with the mother while she's pregnant, and then also for that first year afterwards, mm-hmm. just to really realize uh, how important it is to assess those risk factors. and. Yeah. You know, even if someone's not on the riskier side, that doesn't mean they don't have any risk factors or that they can't be mitigated. Right. And so that's what I try to really advocate for is to have regular assessment during the prenatal period, during the postpartum period, mm-hmm. and, and to remove stigma, you know, yeah. raise knowledge, raise awareness for both the physicians, but also for the patients yeah. to know that it's okay to speak up. And I've heard of cases as well where in certain ethnic or cultural or religious backgrounds, it's more frowned upon to have some kind of psychiatric problems. And mm-hmm. by educating not only the woman and her partner and their family, if something does come up later on down the road, then I think it's easier to broach that subject and say, hey, I'm not feeling okay. Right. I think something wrong and I need help because if the doctor or the nurse or the midwife or whoever, you know, six months earlier said, oh, these are your risk factors and Mm -hmm. this is a real thing. I think it kind of legitimizes that for the family and makes it easier to talk about that if historically their culture or like I said, religion or, you know, whatever has frowned upon that. So that's kind of my message is to raise awareness and, you know, just reduce stigma. This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids' educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games, and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that followed two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. 
episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. Yeah. And you have been doing so much work to get the word out there. And I so appreciate what you're doing. And I know all of the families who come in contact with you also do. And in part of kind of raising awareness, you know, each person's story and path is different. But for Kelly, looking back on it and knowing what you know now, what are some of the signs or things that were tip-offs that would have been, that you mentioned some of her risk factors, but things that you know now about what how she was doing that would have tipped yeah. you guys off to get help sooner? Yeah, I don't know if there are any actual signs because she was pretty honest with herself and with us. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, it was great. You know, it's just for her, I think prevention would have been the best treatment. Yeah. And so, you know, because where we were being treated, they did not regularly screen at that time for risk factors. Mm -hmm. Um, Now they do. As a matter of course, they now in their practice screen all of their pregnant mothers once a trimester. So three times before the baby is born, they're screened and then they're screened immediately thereafter. And I think at certain intervals after the baby is born. Mm -hmm. And so Kelly was extremely high risk. I think mainly because she had had a family history of mental illness and Mm -hmm. because she herself had experienced one or two bouts of clinical depression that needed to be treated with medication. Mm -hmm. And then you combine that with the fact that she was not a good sleeper and was prone to anxiety. All of those really, I think if she would have been screened earlier, Mm -hmm. I think for her, it would have been really helpful to have cognitive behavioral therapy Mm -hmm. to teach her like positive, healthy, natural ways to have almost, if you will, a mental pathway back to like a peaceful mindset. Yeah. And I've been told that cognitive behavioral therapy is much better and more effective when you can train yourself and work with a therapist that Mm -hmm. knows how to do that before you're in crisis. Once you're in crisis, you can't learn that technique. It has to be something. So for her, I think it would have been preventative because Really, for us, I think the signals were just the sleep deprivation mm-hmm. and just to see it. She just, you know, was wearing down and wearing and mentally breaking down. And 
you know, so I guess that would be to answer your question. Those would be the signs in our case that someone yeah. could have seen is just she was so tired and so exhausted, and right. you know, her mind just wasn't working the way it usually would. And mm-hmm. you know, and I think it's to be expected for all new mothers is you know to have a period of of sleeplessness and mm-hmm. you know exhaustion. So, or, you know, the baby blues, but I think once it goes beyond a week or two, and if it continues on and there's no improvement, I think that'd be probably be a good starting point to say, hey, you know, maybe we need some professional help, some intervention to uh, right. get us back on track. Right. And you listed quite a few things too, to that people can be on the lookout for if, if folks who are listening, um, if you already know that you have a history in your family of depression or anxiety or other mental changes or if you yourself have had one, those are things to really keep an eye on during this massive transition from, you know, pregnancy and postpartum where things are just out of whack for a little while right? because of the nature of, you know, being pregnant and then having a newborn and what you described that difficulty with sleep. Yeah. All moms struggle with sleep, but as you mentioned, some have more sensitivity to sleep or lack of sleep than others. And certainly maybe you said that Kelly already had a history of difficulty with sleep sometimes. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Those are really, really good things for the folks who are listening. And there are quite a few therapists also who listen and providers and family members. These are things that we all kind of deserve to know about in order to protect ourselves and our situation and our families so that these kinds of things are not unexpected the transition and difficulty of pregnancy and postpartum, we can prepare. Exactly. And, you know, to follow up with that, you know, people ask me my opinion on a lot of different things in particular. They ask me about, you know, co-sleeping and ask me about, you know, 24-7 on-demand breastfeeding. And, you know, I don't think there's a cookie-cutter answer that's correct for everyone. Yeah. You know, I think we're all different in every aspect of our life. And especially when it comes to bringing a new little one into the family, it changes the dynamics and the relationships and, you know, just the flow, the natural flow of timing and scheduling of just all activities for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I'm not a big proponent of any one hard and fast rule, but I guess what I would say is that you can take these risk factors if you get assessed and say, okay, sit down and say, what's best for the family? Mm -hmm. You know, because if you do everything just based on what's best for the child, it ignores the mother. Right. Or maybe the father or maybe the siblings. Mm -hmm. And then it's detrimental to other members of the family. And particularly if the mother is not being well taken care of, that will indirectly negatively influence the newborn. Right. So the mom needs to be taken care of just as much as a child. And I think people lose sight of that when they try and focus all on just what's best for the child, because then the mom is getting neglected. And I kind of liken it to uh, when you get on a plane, right? Mm -hmm. And they say in the event of a loss of cabin pressure, put on your own mask first before you help your child. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because if the adult isn't there to help the child with the mask, then, you know, that's, yeah, that's a problem. Exactly. So for us, for instance, we tried to do the 24-7 on-demand breastfeeding and the co-sleeping, but because of Kelly's highly sensitive nature towards her sleeping, I think for us, that was a bad choice. Right. Now, for some mothers who have no problem going back to sleep, mm-hmm. you know, after they're woken up, either by a child that's crying at night or 
you know, after doing a midnight feeding, then, you know, fantastic. If it works for them, then I think that's great. But if it doesn't, I think people need to be flexible enough that they can, I guess, marshal their resources in the manner that best suits the entire family, not just the child or just the mother. You know, because it could go the opposite direction of being too extreme towards just taking care of the mother and, right. you know, not doing what the baby needs. So it's a fluid and dynamic situation. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think people should take all the different factors into account. Right. For the dads who are listening or the partners who are listening, like, what are the kinds of things that you might have needed support with? Or what are the pieces of advice that you can give to partners who are listening? I guess for partners, I would just say try to be flexible. And, you know, it is a fluid situation. Just realize that the new mom and the new baby are just getting used to their new roles Mm -hmm. and you're getting used to your new role as well. And, you know, what might have worked a week ago might not work next week or a Mm -hmm. month in the future. So try to be flexible. And, you know, so the partners, like I said, just like with the new mom and the new baby, they also need to be taken care of, too. You know, they can't run themselves ragged to the point where they're no longer helpful to the new mom or to the new child. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of something that, you know, they need to take care of themselves, but stay mentally and emotionally flexible. And, you know, don't be afraid if they see something with their partner, you know, maybe in advance, if they know that it's the new mom, you know, if they've gone through this risk assessment and they know what the risk factors are, Mm -hmm. you know, be open to, I guess, to doing things maybe a little differently than you had planned to help mitigate those risk factors. But at the same time, maybe have an open and honest, like frank discussion before the baby arrives and say, hey, you know, if I see something going on with you, how would you like me to bring that up to you? Because sometimes new moms can be sensitive, right? And so if you have that discussion in advance, you know, maybe there can be some key words and, you know, phrases that let them know I'm not coming from a place of judgment. I'm concerned, you know, I've noticed this or I'm just checking in with you. And so maybe when the new mom hears those little phrases or key words, they know their partner is only trying to express help and love Mm -hmm. and support. But hey, I see that, you know, like sleeplessness was one of your risk factors or depression. And you seem to be, you know, not sure, but it seems like this might be something that is becoming a problem or, you know, that we're struggling with. Mm-hmm. Um, is this, is, is that how you're feeling too? And if so, do we need to seek professional help? Do we need to maybe have a family member come and stay with us for a week or two and help out a little bit more? Yeah. So I think if they have that kind of strategy in place, I think it makes it easier later on right. and make the new mom not feel like maybe attacked or judged or anything, right. you know, so. Oh, that's the beautiful perspective and really great advice. And that's really coming from a place of, you know, I love that preparation and just kind of taking care of the whole family by planning ahead a little bit and really having a discussion that things are going to be different, you know, and how can we communicate through that? That's perfect. I love that. And it sounds like, you know, having the information on hand for you and for most partners would be really helpful beforehand. Yes, definitely. And, you know, me personally, I had never met or known anyone that had admitted to me that they had had a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. You know, that, so for me, it was completely foreign. And I was trying to be supportive and understanding. And, you know, I just wanted her to get better. And so, yeah. You know, for me, I got to the point where 
you know, I had our daughter on the couch with me at night sleeping so that, you know, my wife could sleep in the bed by herself undisturbed. So we would have, you know, breast milk that she had pumped. And so, you know, if our daughter got hungry in the middle of the night, I could feed her. And I was trying to do as much as possible to be supportive. But again, I think in our scenario, I think Kelly's best defense against all of this would have been prevention. You know, there's different treatments that work for different people. She actually wanted uh, ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy. But, you know, a little more difficult to get that in some states than others. And in California Mm -hmm. in particular, it is a little more difficult to get if, you know, like you asked before, would I have done certain things differently? And the answer is definitely for this one is that if I would have known back then how severe it was and really understood, I definitely would have just put her in the car immediately without even packing a bag or anything mm-hmm. and driven to, at that time, probably Arizona or Oregon, which are the two closest states that it's fairly easy at that time to mm-hmm. get the ECT treatment. And I think it's not a treatment in the sense of it's going to cure you, yeah. but it will kind of like reset your brain chemistry to the point where it allows other therapies to work, like maybe, you know, the cognitive behavioral therapy, because then you're no longer in crisis at that moment. Right. Or maybe some of the psychiatric medication that she was taking, mm-hmm. you know, maybe to help through that period where she's transitioning from just starting to take the medication to the point where it actually becomes therapeutic and effective, right. you know, because waiting a couple weeks for right. a certain medication to become effective when you're having a hard time going five minutes without thinking of killing yourself, right? two weeks is an eternity. Right. So, you know, for us, and, you know, I'm sorry, I'm focusing a lot on the postpartum psychosis aspect. That just happens to be my experience with this. But I know for other women and families that don't get to the level of psychosis, I just say that, you know, try and be open to all your options and the treatments and you know, and if you have to go, if you can't find, if your local providers cannot give you the level of support you need, I would highly recommend that you beg, borrow, steal, do whatever it takes <laughs> to help your partner, because in the long run, it'll be worth it for them, for you, and yeah. and also for your child. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you brought up something, or anyways, I heard something that even though she was speaking to you and telling you how bad it was, that unless it's hard to know really what that's like, because a lot of her experience is happening kind of in her mind, in her head, I should say. And even though she was being honest with you, which is awesome, it's still hard to understand the intensity of it from the outside. Oh, of course. Of course. It was very difficult to understand. And like I said, I hadn't had any previous experience with mental health issues. So for me, it was completely foreign. Mm -hmm. And I know for a lot of partners out there, they're probably in the same boat. Yeah. And so that's what I'm saying. For them to understand the level of risk associated with their particular, you know, the mother of their child Mm -hmm. or their newborn, to understand how many risk factors do they have and what are the issues and, you know, and how to best deal with those. If you can prepare in advance mentally that Mm -hmm. these things might come up, but then they might not, you know, there's no guarantee. But I think that that is helpful to just be aware that it might be an issue and it might not. So 
So in the work that you've been doing for this amount of time now, several years, advocating and and bringing the awareness out, have you seen change happen? Have you seen people become more aware? Have you seen fathers or partners taking more of an interest or understanding of what's going on? Well, I think the answer is yes, but it's slow because you know, the people that I speak to a lot of times are I might speak in front of, at a conference for health providers. So mm-hmm. I don't really get any feedback from them so much as far as, oh, my patient population has started to show more, you know, an uptick in awareness and mm-hmm. reducing stigma and reporting these kinds of issues. You know, I don't get that kind of feedback. And then obviously people don't come to me. I do have friends and family members and, you know, extended people in my network of contacts that will come to me and say, hey, you know, my coworker's sister-in-law is starting yeah. to feel some of these things. Who should she talk to? Yeah. And so I'll give them contact information, you know, referral information for, you know, support groups and warm lines that they can call. But see, I never get any feedback. So I don't hear back mm-hmm. <laughs> if that yeah. was like a positive thing to actually help them. So, but I have to believe it is helping because I've seen, you know, different documentaries, different people being interviewed on TV and different shows Mm -hmm. that describe what they went through and how they got help. And so when I see that, and I know that message is being broadcast more and more. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the practice where Kelly was treated, it was a midwife practice during her prenatal stages. I now know that they screen, well, not screen, but they assess for risk factors every trimester now for all their patients. Great. So, Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy The Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of The Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. 
I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. I have to believe that those kinds of things are now helping and I see more and more resources popping up, maybe in the form of, you know, inpatient, outpatient type centers where a woman is feeling some of these things, whether it's depression or anxiety or any of the other mood disorders that come along with this Mm -hmm. or even psychosis that these centers now allow women, you know, new moms to bring in their babies with them. Yeah. And I think that's key is that instead mm-hmm. of treating the mom like there's something wrong with you, it's like, right. you know, why don't you come down, bring your baby, you know, on Tuesday at three o'clock and there's some other new moms that are also having some feelings and you guys can sit and talk and share and bond. And, yeah. you know, there might be, you can have your babies with you or there might be a little nursery off to the side where there's, you know, caregivers that can you know watch your baby while you're in there talking. And some of those scenarios, you know, the women can stay there for a day or two if they need to, and their baby's there with them and they get to see right. the baby. Whereas, you know, in the past, I think since they treated the mom and the child as different entities mm-hmm. and where the mom would have to go to these appointments by herself, or if she needed more intensive care or therapy, she'd have to be separated from her child. Right. I think she'd be less likely to participate in that yeah. for a number of different reasons. Right. And so I It makes me happy that a lot of these resources are now available to these families currently. And I wish that they were available at the time, but you know, when you know better, you do better. And so I'm happy with the direction everything is going. You've done so much great work in the field from what I've seen and from the outside, kind of looking into the work that you've done. I'm, you know, I've seen you advocating and being a part of these documentaries and really getting the word out there. So I know that it has to be helping because the message is getting out. And even for those moms or partners or family members who are, you know, sitting and kind of getting this information through a documentary or even through the podcast or just kind of seeing a celebrity come and talk about it. The awareness is part of what helps us to get the message out there that moms and family members can be helped through this. So what kind of support have you found? What kind of messages of hope and healing do you have for families who may be struggling? I guess, as I was mentioning before, you know, the current state, the new standard of care, I guess I would call it, is much higher than it was, you know, even just seven years ago when Kelly died, seems like a lot more practices are aware that they screen more or, you know, assess the risks. It seems like there's a better network for referrals that if a risk factor is found or identified, that it's easier for different medical practitioners to refer the mother. There's different facilities, as I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier, that seem to have a more like almost, I guess, for lack of a better term, like a more holistic approach where the mom and the child can go together and stay as long as they need mm-hmm. to be treated. I think in those scenarios, it's easier for a mom to feel like, okay, I'm not abandoning my child to go get treatment for me. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, we're going together to treat us. Yeah. And I think that it's easier for the mom to say, yes, I'm willing to do this. Or for, mm-hmm. you know, say if it's a family where it's just the parents, and the new child, and maybe the mm-hmm. grandparents or relatives, extended family live far away, so they don't have an extended network of people to help them. Right. You know, it would be difficult in that scenario for the mom to just say, well, I'm leaving for two days to get treated, and now the partner has to take time off of work 
you know, for two days. To, mm-hmm. and sometimes that's not possible. So right. it's nice that a lot more treatment options are available and, and there's movement growing as far as all aspects from the legislative side of things, from the medical practice, from yeah. the societal reduction of stigma. So yeah. I'm very optimistic for the direction things are going. And I would say the help is out there and just, you know, and some of the campaigns I've been involved with, you know, to speak up when you're down is that mm-hmm. I think that's the most important thing is that, you know, people can't help you if you keep it inside. Right. You know, you need to speak up, whether it's to your parents, your siblings, your partner, you know, a friend, a coworker, a church member, your physician, you know, you have to say that you need help. You know, yeah. if you don't let people know, then they can't help you. So, and they're just going to mm-hmm. assume every, everything is fine. So, Unfortunately, uh, they do. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that goes for the, also for the partners out there. If the partner mm-hmm. is dealing with something, you know, yeah. they need to speak up too. And it doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean there's a problem. It means you're being honest. And with anything, whether it's a problem in your emotional well being, your financial, your career, in any aspect of life, if you don't identify the problem and then communicate it to the outside world, it cannot be resolved. And so I'd say that's the first step is just be honest with yourself, be honest with those that are close around you that you trust and, you know, that support you. And if you knock on one door and it's not open to you, don't stop knocking until someone answers the door because, you know, it could be possible that a woman, a new mom tells her partner and maybe for religious or cultural or whatever reasons he might not believe her or Mm -hmm. might say, oh, it's all just in your head. Okay, well, don't stop. Go to the next person. If you have a sister or or a friend or a neighbor or a a parent or, you know, no matter how many times people say, no, it's just in your head, you know, you can get over it. Ignore those people and (laughs) go to the next person. And just keep going until you find someone who believes you and wants to help you and support you, you know, and don't stop till you get the help you need. Man, Raul, that is gold. That advice is gold. It's so true. Just because somebody says, denies how you're feeling or doesn't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. And it happens so often that we get, once we feel shot down or misunderstood, that we, you know, sit back and stop kind of questioning and fighting and getting the help. I really appreciate your perspective and that advice. It's so good. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I thank you so much for being on with us and for sharing Kelly's story and all of the work that you're doing now and continue to do. It really is amazing how this pain for you has turned into this beautiful work that helps so many people. You're welcome. And thank you for having me on. And thank you for your work on this podcast and all of the work you do to help people out. It's beautiful. And I'm inspired by you and your actions. So thank you for your work. Oh man. Thanks. I'm almost tearing up. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Hearing Raul and Kelly's story is a powerful and difficult reminder of what can happen when mothers, families, and providers are not informed or aware of how to prepare and care for themselves and mothers and families. And we have so much work to do. And Raul is so right when he says that we need to keep knocking on doors until we find someone who listens and knows what to do. If you or someone you know may be struggling, please reach out. You can look at www.postpartum.net, which is Postpartum Support International, for resources for help in your area, as well as information about symptoms and risk factors. You are definitely not alone, and you can feel better. Thank you for joining us today. 
If you or someone you know is having a hard time, help is available. Please look for resources for help at momandmind.com. Also, please subscribe and share this podcast. Together, we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Thank you for being a part of the Mom and Mind community. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.